Good morning, it's Laura Huey and you're joining me for Sociology 9009, which is the graduate seminar on evidence-based policy here at the University of Western Ontario. I am now taping this for the second time. I was so much, it was so fun, it was such a wonderful uh, discussion and now it's gonna suck. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, it's a little frustrating. I got 30 minutes of the way through and then, then my laptop died. I don't, and guess what? It was a peaceful 30 minutes without Chewbacca and Lucy going off. So that's probably for sure going to happen this time. And who knows, maybe even Mr. Huey will make a guest appearance, come stumbling down the stairs, bellowing at me, looking for his keys or something. Let's get cracking. So today we're talking about communicating for different audiences. This is part one of a two-part series. And what I want to focus in on is how do academics usually speak? We usually speak to audiences through to other academics in academic conferences. What we need to do, as I said in a previous discussion, is we've got to, if we really want to shift policy, we've got to speak to a bunch of different types of audiences. And to do that, we have to gear our content towards how the audience would like to receive it versus forcing, cramming it down their throat with the way that academics often do. Nancy Duarte's written a fantastic book about this. I suggest you, I, the title of which completely escapes me. I probably knew it the last time I taped this. Uh, but anyway, if you Google Nancy Duarte and Amazon, uh, you'll find the book. She says that there are seven questions that we should ask ourselves while we're, when we're preparing a talk or a other type of presentation. The first one is, what is the audience like? Demographics are a great place to start. Understanding uh, who will be there, what you know, what their experiences are, what their potential um, potential interests might be. That's all important, and that ties into number two. Why are they here? People took time out of their day to hear you. Whether that or to read you, whether that is at a formal presentation, whether that is uh, listening to a podcast, you know why? But you have to ask yourself why. What are they hoping to get out of this? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you want there to be a sync up, a match between what they hope to get out of it, and what you hope to deliver. Here's another one. We've talked a lot over the past a little bit about uh, emotions and the fact that emotions play a significant role in how we make decisions, how our value systems develop, uh, and so on. So we want to ask, what keeps them up at night? Everyone has a fear, or if you don't like fear, concern. Most people are interested in hearing you speak because they have some pre uh, they have some pre-existing interest or concern that they're hoping that you will be able to provide a solution for. Or, in some cases, your solution's wrong and they want to tell you about it. But I digress. Number four, how can you solve their problem? What's in it for the audience? How are you going to make their lives better? Number five, what do you want them to do? This is one of the ones that I myself have struggled with. Oftentimes I'll go and give a, uh, do a workshop with practitioners. I'll pump them up. They're super excited about evidence-based policing. And they go back to their agencies and then they say, well, now what? What are we supposed to do with this? I don't know what the next steps are. 
And it's not just with practitioner groups, but it can also be with community groups or nonprofits and so on. You're like, well, we we're gonna get you all charged up. Well, I've got a solution. Well, that's great. How do I implement that solution? So you wanna be able to answer some of those questions up front so that they, they first of all know what the so what question is, which I'll talk, the answer to the so what question is, which I'll talk about shortly, but also what they'll understand what action they need to take to, to implement that solution. So number six, how might they resist? Let's be honest, you're talking about change whether that's policy change, institutional change, program change, group level change, you're talking about change. And as I've articulated previously, not every, change isn't great for everybody. Not everybody likes to change. Um, you know, there's still people out there that like their Blackberries. Hello, I, you know, iPhone, please. Uh, so you need to be prepared for that. And you, you might also consider how you might tailor your presentation in ways that bring people on board with you rather than alienate them. And number seven, how can you best reach them? People, and I'm going to have a, not in the next discussion, but the one after that, I'm going to talk about how people have different preferences for how they consume information. I like a 260 character tweet. I think it's 260 or 280, whatever the hell it is. That's what I like. Um, and then if I want to know more, I'll go dig for more. I don't like podcasts, which is really ironic because I podcast like a maniac, but I don't. Other people do. So despite the fact that I don't listen to them, I, I needed to think, well, wait a sec. If many people like podcasts, see, I'm missing out on audience members that I might otherwise reach. So, you know, you want to think about those types of things. If you're doing a, a standard talk, what about having takeaway material that people can take with them back to their offices or their homes or whatever so that that content stays fresh and also, you know, it, 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 some people, like I said, consume better that way. So give the audience what they want, how they want it, is what Duarte argues. Typical talks are, let's face it, I hate academic talks. I never, rarely ever go to academic talks. This is very well known about me. I don't even want to go to my own talks. Why? Because they're boring as hell. Academic talks, we've talked, you know, we've mentioned this before. We spend a lot of time on a bunch of slides that people really don't care about except for one nerdy person at the back who is waiting 20 minutes to like undo the researcher with some methodological question that nobody really cares about and we're all sitting there looking at our watches well aware that they've served coffee outside. Where will you find me at an academic talk? Out in the hallway. If if you find me. I might actually be shopping. That's, that's how little a value I find in most academic talks. Why? Well, we're going to explain some of the reasons why. Uh, but I'm not going to skip that slide. First of all, Academic talks, we as academics, we are used to teaching in classrooms in which we lecture at students. And so we assume all our audiences need and want to be taught. Uh, Duarte says the dominant approach to science communication risks further alienating scientists from the public by placing scientists in the role of teachers. Nobody signed up, the general public didn't sign up for a class. They just want to hear your point on this. 
In my experience, non-technical audiences can handle plenty of complexity, so there's no need to dumb down your content nor to lecture. Scientific societies and others in the field have moved from seeking public understanding of or appreciation from audiences to public engagement, a process in which the non-scientists also get to speak and share. Typical standard academic talk, 20-minute panel presentation, followed by a Q&A session. I, if, you know what I hate more than talks? The Q&A session. You know why? Because it's so scripted. It is, doesn't, you know, there's no real engagement. I want, and I used to be guilty of this. I used to run workshops with police practitioners in which we did a presentation followed by a Q&A. Nobody ever asked questions, rarely asked questions. Why? Because by the time they got to the Q&A part, they just decided that life wasn't worth living anymore and they did not want to, they, they wanted to go out and have their coffee and their pastries and recharge because they are now physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted from the previous 20 minutes of boredom. Or so usually 60 minutes to 75 minutes of presentations followed by a 15 minute Q&A. Let's think about that. How much engagement is actually gonna take place during that? Especially when you know there will be one person who goes up to the microphone, and I've done this too, um, to make basically an announcement fault that is disguised as a question. So, um, leave out the lecture and provide spaces in which people can actually contribute. Uh, towards the end of my uh, workshops, after doing this for five years, what I did was I, we stopped doing these big presentations. We did smaller scale, classroom sized, 30, maybe max 30 people. And there was a lot of engagement. I was up and down the aisles. I was talking to people. I was pointing at people. Come on, you just like you would with a fourth year seminar or a graduate class. Get up, move around, and and talk to people in the midst of the presentation. Failing to answer the so what question. Here's the thing: if you can't tell me why your talk matters to me or to people whom to whom I can relate, um, I don't care. You, you will lose the chance to connect and really make your points. This is far more important than making sure you have covered everything you know because it keeps your audience's needs front and center rather than your own needs. Uh, this is something I see over and over again. I see an ego involvement with presenters where it's like, I've got to get through every slide. I've got to get through it. I've got to get through everything it. Everything I say is going to be important. It's going to be groundbreaking. Most, most things are not in a talk groundbreakingly important that we have to sit through an extra 15, 20 minutes of this. Tell me what I need to know. And if you do a good job at it, you might actually get people who never thought about that issue before. They're like, wait, that actually is important. I do care about that. Um, here's a suggestion, creating a mystery, asking the audience a leading question uh, and then solving the puzzle you present throughout your presentation. Two examples I, I provide are of course from criminal justice. One is why do police officers not just wing people when they shoot? Now. TV, movies, and so on makes it seem like it's super easy. You just shoot the person in the leg, they go down, and then you arrest them. Well, because people come with a media-saturated set of beliefs around policing and use of force, I can expect that will not only get their attention 
and get them thinking about this and thinking about how they're going to make their points. But when they're doing that, they're still engaged with what I have to say. So that's one technique. Another technique is to create a true mystery uh, in relation to something they might not have thought of before. So here's a question. Why do some communities not mind having a Hells Angels clubhouse in their neighborhood? And that, that's one that seems counterintuitive too. Wait, wait, you would want to outlaw a biker gang in your neighborhood? No, but that, nobody would want that. But I phrased it in such a way that I'm forcing you to start to think through what, is she, what could she possibly say about this? And every time when, as, I, as I parse this mystery out, I'm providing clues that will hopefully help the audience answer the question at the end and go, ah, see that's about the audience, that's not about me. Go back to the, what I said about ego involvement. Here's something that audiences really don't enjoy, but we do standardly. We hide behind lecterns, powerpoints, and pointers and other uh, props that make us feel good that you know we're in control of the situation, but actually distance us from our audience. Uh, the lectern one, I'm not super guilty of. I like to run around like a maniac. I actually hate setups of, at conferences where you're forced to sit at a at a panel, like, uh, I don't know, at some sort of panel thingy. And then you go up to your lecture and then you sit down. I hate that. That's, I just, that's brutal. But we do it over and over again. I want to get up and then I want sometimes, I want to walk around. I'd like to go up and down the aisles. I want to go everywhere. And when you do that, when you're visually moving as opposed to staying static, people will follow along with you, I've discovered. PowerPoint, massively guilty of death by PowerPoint. I use PowerPoint because, as I did this morning, I don't prepare, I don't go through my slides and refresh. This is terrible, I don't. I like to wing it, but I still need to have some reference points. And there's some things that I think are important enough to repeat that I'll put it up on the slide. I gotta get over that. I gotta try to you know, parse out my information in a way that doesn't cause uh, a, a, an avalanche, a tsunami, a PowerPoint. Pointers, I hate, I never use them, but some people like them. I'm serious, seriously though, if you have to use a pointer, you probably have too much stuff on your slide. Here's something I see presenters guilty of all the time, wasting our attention at the beginning or the end. Audience attention is highest at the start and end of your presentation. It's highest at the start because they want to know what, what am I here for. It's highest at the end because they know that their moments of freedom are coming soon. It's like students start packing up five minutes before you're done. It's the same thing. So they have now tuned back into you if they've dialed out and they want to hear, okay, what's my takeaway? What do I often see? Presenters wasting time talking about everybody that ever worked on the project, funders, things that the audience doesn't really care about. So get into your topic right off the bat and make sure that you wrap up the important pieces that they need to take with them when you're done. Don't for 15 minutes and then, you know, then race through your slides at the end, which I see over and over again. The slides at the end are typically the important stuff. Academics leave the important stuff to the end for the grand finale that they then have to race through. Here's one. I'm, I have the worst. I am the worst. 
I'm just going to admit this right up front. I have the worst temper and I really don't like stupid questions. And if you try to poke the bear, the bear comes. The bear will come out. I, I know this. But I have tried, I, this is something I struggle with, reacting rather than responding to questions. There's always going to be somebody that's going to have a provocative question that, you know, is going to cause you to react rather than respond. However, when you do that, you lose the argument and you also lose the chance to add perspective to the debate and to bring other people along with you. So one of the things we have to develop over time is not innate is cultivating a non-anxious, non-reactive response to a wildly provocative question. Um, using a sense of humor helps and thinking about this in terms of providing distance also helps. One of the things that I do is I, you know, I'm not somebody who is, well, because I am a reactor, I will do it, but I'll do it in a funny way. So to give you an example, I once gave a presentation to an audience of Crown prosecutors, police practitioners, policymakers, and uh, the media was there, and I, I, which I actually didn't know. My talk was on community notification and sex offenders being released on parole into communities. My argument was that BC actually does a pretty good job, like a pretty measured response to dealing with both privacy issues around releasing people and also not creating vigilante justice. Um, as well as balancing the needs, of course, for, for local communities to feel safe. That was my argument. Well, this police, senior police leader who just assumed, I guess, based on stereotypes, that academics would be ultra-left-leaning, tree-hugging, Birkenstock-wearing, like, I love criminals type, type person. Um, you know, and of course, I'm paraphrasing what I think that this person would have thought. Uh, he marched up there and basically said, I don't agree with anything you say. If there's a sex offender in my cul-de-sac, I need to know to protect my kids. I'm a boots-on-the-ground cop and blah, blah, blah. And then he stomped away. He just like a harangued at me, told me I was wrong and stomped away. So what I did was, I just went like, uh-uh, mm-mm, come back here. Hey, you, come on, come on, come on, come back. I got something to say to you. And the way I did it, you know, I was like, aha, you, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And, but I did it in a kind of funny, kind of bossy way where my hands on my hips point to the microphone. People were laughing. And it gave me a second or two to think, well, he marched back to the microphone to think about how I wanted to respond. And that's why I, 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 I did it for two reasons. One, to point out, you're not going to get away with that. And two, to buy myself some time to respond. And then I took him apart. So there you go. There are some ways that you can you can sort of handle these things. That, that's one suggestion. There's other ways. And of course, over time, you'll develop what works for you. Uh, I've talked about this already. Insisting on giving your whole presentation, despite the fact that you're now 15 minutes over. Seen this multiple times. Somebody with a 30-minute time slot, which should be more than enough to cover your material, goes 20 minutes over. You've now screwed up everybody else's schedule, 
angered the audience, angered me, who's sitting there like flashing signs every three minutes, like end it, end it, end it. I, it got to the point where I actually went out and got a coffee, came back, and it was still going on. Like, I, this is not, it's not, it's actually really rude to hold your audience hostage because you didn't prepare or because you think that your talk is so scintillating that the fact that they've had to go to the bathroom for 20 minutes now and are waiting for you to stop supersedes that. Please don't do that. That's really, really not good behavior. Audience, uh, all audiences, but especially practitioners, hate it when we insist on using academic speak. It doesn't matter if you are a healthcare practitioner, if you're a lawyer, if you are a uh, any type of practitioner, or the general public. Nobody wants to hear wah wah wah. Nobody thinks that if you're like Ugh. if I ha if I have to unpack something then I'm pro it's probably not that interesting. So I'm gonna read you an abstract that actually came across my Twitter feed from an actual conference. Ready? Here we go. From the critique of the risks geopolitical and its conception of internal enemy, we keep track of the instruments for the new doctrine for hemispheric security, making a comparative study between statements and derivative transactions of the Conference of Defense Ministers of the Americas and the strategic role of the Union of South American Nations, UNISAR, in its Security Council, comma, highlighting the disputes, breakdowns, and restorations, comma, as well as their potential obstacles and challenges as a possible regional space in the building of sovereignty and self-determination of the subcontinent, period. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lines for one sentence. I was ready to gasp for air and I was trying to take quiet little like, like air intake breaks through that. I have no idea what the hell this is about. I have zero interest in attending this talk. Why? It's not accessible. In fact, if this is a, a, a foreshadowing of what's to come, I will lose 20 minutes of my life listening to gobbledygook, like just jargon-filled nonsense. So this is not, this is not helpful. If you can't speak, if you can't, well, let's go on to the next slide. Because I think it says it. Present your data in a way that, oh, here we go. Audiences hate it when you present your data or your research in a way that only makes sense to you and possibly to three other people on the planet, like that abstract I just read. Um, if you, you can't see this, but up on my, you can check the PowerPoints, up on my uh, screen is a slide that I actually downloaded of some something I don't know what the hell this is but anyway it, it looks like all, it looks like nonsense and guess what it was nonsense oh I think I'm just gonna skip that oh yeah okay so the previous slide that I said was nonsense somebody posed somebody answered a question so sorry somebody posed a question I think that had to do with golfing and COVID or something like that and okay so here we go so somebody posted a question on Facebook that said, serious question, can someone tell me why the golf courses are closed? 
during COVID, good exercise which boosts immune system, easy to do social distancing, no risks of contamination because everyone uses their own clubs. If anyone can explain to me the problem, please let me know. When the government is lifting re uh, restrictions, golf needs to be the first one to come back. So somebody wrote, responded and said, hi Pete, here are some figures from the World Health Organization website that I think will answer your question. Some people dispute the figures for surfing, but for now it's the best we've got. And as you can see, golf is in second place. And then they posted a series of numbers. Surfing, 47, 12, 41%. Golf, 43, 28, 36%. Cycling, 26, 71, 19%. Eagles, 29, 31, 38%. And number five, texting, 31, 64, 31%. So, the guy that posted the question, Pete, responds and says, what are these figures in relation to? What does the percentage of each one mean? And Michael responds, it's a mathematical symbol pronounced as percent. It's derived from the Latin percentum, with per translating as by or for, and centum meaning 100. To put that in layman's terms, it basically means out of 100. <laughs> Pete writes back, I know what percent means. I'm asking what the figures mean. What does 43, 28, 36% mean for golf? Are these safety calculations or what? Post a link to the full chart. So the full chart is what I posted, what was on the previous slide, which is it's nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. Described as some sort of a, of a statistical chart showing time series. And so somebody else posted, am I missing something? Or does this chart make no sense? Why are eagles in it? And Michael responds, because they got 38%. And Declan, this guy says, but what's the context for that? And what do the, what do the 29 and 31 mean? Without context, you're basically posting a list of random numbers. I'm trying hard not to laugh. But my response, 29 and 31 are the numerical values that are used to calculate the overall percentage. And somebody says, an overall percentage of what? And Michael says, 100. <laughs> and Pete says, thanks for proving you're a moron. <laughs> and somebody finally realized and said, this is either the stupidest or best thing I've ever read on this group. I just showed it to my wife and she asked, why is cycling third with 19%? And I had no answer and we're both wondering. And Michael says, because cycling only got 71 in the second column. <laughs> and so he put, Michael posts the full chart. And number six is swimming outdoors, 91, 12, 26%. Number seven is snow leopard, 14, to be continued, 58%. Horses, excluding the years 1998 to 2001, are 29, 39, 28%. And Joseph Stalin rounds everything out in number 13 spot with 33%. And somebody said, can someone, can anybody explain what this looks like? This looks like gibberish to me. And <laughs> Josh, who's now figured out that this is a hilarious uh, take on how I <laughs> This is a hilarious take on how academics often publish numbers with no context. Says, thanks, Michael. Can't believe Czech Republic only got 23% shaking my head. 
And Eric says, huge shock to see Snow Leopard score 58%, but only finish in seventh. So seriously, a lot of times we post up a bunch of numbers with zero contacts, but we assert that, that you know these are numbers, it says numeric, blah, blah, blah. We ran a statistical analysis and blah, blah, blah with a time series and confidence intervals. And this is what we came up with. And this is what people took away. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So that's why I posted this. And again, it, it's, it's, it's a funny thread. It highlights a lot of the problems that we have in academia with just, you know, the bottom line is what is the takeaway that I need to know? Don't give me all these stupid numbers, especially without context. Um, types of infographics. For those of you that are interested in presenting your work in terms of infographics, I am putting up a slide here that is available on the my power on my website under PowerPoints, lhuey.net. No, I'm not. I'm not getting any comp. I'm not like. I'm not, I've not monetized my website, so you're not forced to buy a T-shirt or a coffee mug with my face on it. But you can take a look at the different types of infographics. I think infographics are a fantastic way of really condensing down information. And in fact, what I would argue is. If you start with an infographic, that might be a good point from which to build a presentation, which is why, because again, it forces you to cut out all the stuff that is not absolutely necessary. This is by Matthew Griffins, and again, talking about how to design an infographic, I would argue it's a good way to also design your presentation. Start with what is the key message to take, to take, to convey. Blah, blah, blah. I'm almost coming up to coffee time. Um, visualize. Think symbolically about how you can prevent your key message in ways that will symbolize your key message for the audience, but also help you, like I'm pointing to myself, trigger what it is that you want to say instead of putting up a wall of text. Flow. You have to think about the flow of information both in the presentation and in the infographic. Colors. In terms of presenting, making your presentations more colorful, more visually interesting if you are going to be using slides. And play. Have fun with it. Experiment with how you're going to try out different things in the infographic, but also in your presentation. Just so that you can break out of the standard monotonous Um, Let's see. I just want to see how much fruit. You know, I don't trust. I do not trust. Do, do, do. Okay, I don't trust that this is my uh, my computer's not going to crash. So I'm trying to see how much more stuff I have to go here. Um, I will talk about skeptics in terms of presentations. What uh, Adam Grant uh, calls the Sarek effect, which is like a fake effect. But basically, what he says is, oftentimes if you're trying, if you're working with an audience in which you know up front there's going to be a lot of skeptics. Lead with the limitations of your research. Disarm your audience. Say, yeah, I know you have issues. I know you have concerns about these. I'm going to address them. I'm not, instead of doing what we often do, which is cherry pick what we want to say to ignore the limitations or the concerns of the audience. Sorry, the limitations of your research, limitations of our knowledge, and therefore dismiss, also dismissing your audience. It disarms your audience. Grants argues it makes you look smarter because you're actually willing to critically analyze things, including holes within your own argument. And it also makes you look more trustworthy because you're acknowledging up front 
that it's not a perfect world and what you have to say has, has limitations. I'm going to skip that. I've already talked about don't lecture me. I've already talked about don't assume that the facts will speak for themselves. They do not. You have to advocate for the facts. Um, this is up. Ah. And so here's the question I want to sort of end off with. And I realize I'm rushing through a little bit. I'm doing everything I, I ought not to be doing as a presenter. I am complete and utter hypocrite. Admit it. But I'm also conscious of the fact that this thing is going to crash, probably. Um, or the dogs will bark. Here's a question I want to end off with. I want you to think about what habits do you have that might make you a less than effective speaker? Are you somebody who is anxious? Are you somebody who gets tongue-tied? I mean, we all have them. I get, um, you hear me all throughout this, this series because my brain and my mouth come, sometimes get disconnected. Um, you'll hear me slurping coffee because or coughing because you know I get a super dry throat and I don't want to cough and then you know whatever. We all have these things. One of the exercises we typically do in class is we talk about these and we also strategize about different ways in which we can overcome them. So if you're somebody, I say so a lot. <laughs> Other people go um 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 and that and that's. That is something, that, a habit that they might want to break. So we all have things that we feel awkward or make us less than effective. So think about that and then let's start thinking constructively about ways that we can overcome these so that we become the more effective speaker that we aspire to be. And on that note, I got through this. Yay! It's coffee time! Okay, thanks. Catch you on the flip.